Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk in the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Kayla Tausche. Kramer has the morning off. Welcome to September, historically the worst month for the S&P, but 2020 has already given us plenty of surprises. We'll see what happens. Futures are mixed at this hour as we await some PMIs and ISM data. Oil's hanging on to 43. Our roadmap begins with September and stocks. Can the major averages add to their 7% plus gains from August? Ben, Walmart's answer to Amazon Prime will give you a breakdown of what is included and what's not. And finally, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows will join us live. We'll talk stimulus, COVID-19, and the unrest across the nation. That's happening toward the top of this hour, and you will not want to miss that, Carl. Kayla, David, guys, everybody's taking stock of uh, the journey that we've had, not just in August for stocks, but for the past five months, uh, the Dow, best five-month gain since 2009. For the S&P, the best five months since 1938. And as we said at the top, David, we are heading into historically the worst month, uh, not just in general, but especially during election years. September and October have average negative returns. And we'll talk to Mark Meadows about politics, which are increasingly going to be part of the picture here. Yeah, no doubt. I think you heard it with the last guest who appeared uh, on uh, Squawk Box there at the very end of, of that show. Uh, we're entering what conceivably could be a very tumultuous period, uh, not to mention uh, the election night itself, potentially. And I'll defer to Kayla on a lot of this, but that could be uh, very difficult to ascertain at some point. So that certainly is going to become more of the mix here in terms of how investors view things. But for now, uh, Carl and Kayla, I mean, we're coming off this period, as you said, we're August up over 7%. And, you know, I hear this uh, more often than not now, which is, man, this is looking, this puts 1999 to shame in some ways. And, I, you know, I think you always want to make comparisons. Some are apt and other parts of it aren't. We're talking now about some of the greatest companies we've ever seen created in this country, as opposed to that period where there was so much speculation in business models that had no business at all. That's not the case for Apple or for Amazon or for Tesla even. But the moves in the stocks are truly extraordinary. Uh, and Tesla and Apple, of course, after the splits yesterday, I mean, $464 billion market value for Tesla. And Mr. Musk, of course, is net worth now, what, $120 billion. It is staggering. Uh, not to mention the performance of Zoom this morning as well, another example of the stay-home economy that is outperforming even the highest expectations in terms of earnings. But there are certainly, David, haves and have-nots. You mentioned the high flyers in the tech industry. There are certainly many legacy names in the industrial space that have not seen those gains. 
that you just mentioned, but the White House does view it as a tailwind. The president yesterday at his briefing talked about the gains that we saw in the stock market in August as something that was good for the economy, even as data from the Federal Reserve shows that it's really the wealthier part of this nation that has been able to benefit. The Fed says that uh, that the top 1% of earners in this country hold more than 50% of stocks right now. The top 10% of earners hold 87% of stocks. So certainly all of these gains, Carl, you mentioned, best gain for the S&P since 1928, according to Bespoke. I mean, that is certainly something to take note of, but it's also worth noting who is benefiting from this, how it really helps the underlying economy, and what the underlying economy actually looks like. Just this morning, Barclays is out with a note trying to estimate the impact on GDP from parents who are working from home having to manage virtual learning. They say it's something in the line of half of a percentage point for the calendar year, but that it could be as much as two percentage points for the third quarter, three and a half percentage points for the fourth quarter. And so we're trying to figure out what this brave new world we live in actually means for the underlying economy if we can't look to the stock market as a guide there, Carl. No, absolutely not. Uh, and and if, if Jim were here, he would uh, say once again what a huge blind spot we're dealing with if all you go by is the performance of public equities. Uh, Journal uh, David this morning with his piece about evictions uh, starting to ramp up uh, now that the moratoriums are beginning to expire and the economy continues to open. We're also struggling, to your point, David, about how we value some of these names that we knew had an upward trajectory, but there's no sense as to how far that actually goes. Zoom is a great example today. The quarter last night, uh, the performance before the bell. Goldman this morning, Heather Bellini, uh, going from sell on Zoom, sell to neutral, saying, uh, although we've been positive on the company, we, we are, there's clearly no telling where the limits are on valuation. And part of that may be froth. Part of it may be the fact that their customer count uh, their, their enterprise business and their consumer business is performing in ways we could not have imagined. Yeah, and you know, valuation, you'd like it to come into the conversation to some extent. I think there are, listen, we've talked about it a lot, but it is such an important component of the moves that we've seen, the new investors who, uh, who are joining this market and have done so over the last number of months, who are piling into some of these names and seeing great profits as a result uh, to some extent. But Valuation does have a way of coming back at some point and being meaningful. It's not clear that that's the case now. And by the way, in a name like Zoom, where revenues were greater in the last quarter than they were for all the revenues brought in last fiscal year, where adjusted net income was more than double what it earned in all of last year, I mean, it's going in the right direction. It is, uh, it is not exactly disappointing in any way, but to your point, Carl, um, the multiples in many of these names, even in an Apple, which uh, is the largest market cap company in the world at over 2.2 trillion, has moved up dramatically. Now, in, a, in an environment where rates are near zero and potentially will stay there for a long period of time, where there is an inability to find a return in most or any other markets, it is perhaps not unexpected that would be the case, but you still have to at least keep it in mind. I mean, look at the one-month, Kayla, move in Apple, 23%. 23% off of what was already a trillion seven or trillion eight market cap at that point. It's stunning. And it's hard to see what could slow that gain, David. I mean, we've, we've just sustained the worst headline cycle 
in decades uh, for this country or for at least a decade. And these stocks are on a tear. There is nearly nothing that can stop them. And while strategists say that we are overdue for a sort of garden variety pullback, it's hard to see what is out there on the horizon that would actually cause that to happen. We are going to get a jobs number this Friday. We will see whether it shows sustained growth of more than a million jobs in this country for the third month in a row. And we will see what the underlying economy looks like again. Um, but it is hard to see if investors are willing to put their money into these companies uh, because they can't get returns elsewhere, because they are aspirationally hoping for products that they are yet to release, for uh, targets they have yet to deliver on, then what actual data, what actual announcements could actually cause that pullback? Carl, it's really impossible to see. No, I know. I mean, look at the classic, <laughs> the, some of the classic tells, Kayla, that we normally look at that would imply uh, a bit of a pullback, a split not happening with Apple or Tesla, certainly, an additional equity raise, uh, which, of course, Tesla announces today, up to $5 billion in new common uh, in this 8K, still up uh, after a 12% gain on Monday, after a 74% gain in August, making it the best-performing stock of the month. So uh, we have not just big players, but big players that are defying the laws of, uh, of gravity in many ways, Kayla. And one thing, Carl, that we keep hearing over and over again is that the market has priced in a new stimulus package. We have yet to see that, but we have someone who is leading the negotiations on behalf of the White House that we want to turn to right now. Standing on the North Lawn is the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, joining us now. Chief, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. So in the last couple of days, both you and the House Speaker have accused each other of putting up a number that you're negotiating but not filling it in with programs. When I spoke to the Pelosi camp yesterday, they said the way that they see this negotia negotiation going is having the two sides agree on a price tag and then backfilling it from there. Is that a workable approach to you? Well, it's not a workable approach because that's not the way that you actually arrive at any kind of a number. Generally, what you do is you say you have a certain amount allocated for this program, another amount for uh, a, a, another program. And as you do that, you build it from the ground up. That's what we've been trying to do, base it on facts, base it on, on actually uh, the cost associated with each program. I think that's been the frustration. I will say this. Uh, as we've uh, had discussions with Democrats on Capitol Hill, uh, as we've continued our discussions with Republican senators, uh, we're making real progress. And I, I will say that as we look at uh, the number of things that we actually agree to and the, and the uh, amounts of money allocated to those areas, uh, probably the biggest stumbling block that remains is the amount of money that would go to state and local uh, help. Uh, the speaker is still at $915 billion, which is just not a number that's based on reality and certainly not a number that represents the lost revenues for state and local governments. Well, what is a number on that specific line item that you think the president would get on board with that could also secure the Republican votes in the Senate to pass? Is there a number that you're discussing, discussing behind closed doors? Well, we actually have talked about giving great flexibility for the $150 billion that was allocated in the previous CARES Act, uh, in addition to another $150 billion uh, that would go there, which would uh, overall give uh, $300 billion uh, in terms of flexibility and additional funds to state and local, which should represent the actual uh, loss that we see. If you take the GDP reduction that we've experienced, 
advanced over the last quarter and, and based on proje uh, projections now, uh, that should indicate about a $275 billion uh, loss in revenues. That's what we're trying to address. Uh, and, and I'm willing to look at the, at the facts. Secretary Mnuchin has been very clear uh, uh, that he's willing to look at the facts. And, and right now, uh, it, it doesn't need to be a bailout as much as it is uh, just an additional help to, to provide some stability to those uh, local governments that have, have lost revenue during this unprecedented time. That being said, uh, you know, we're making real progress with some of the Democrats on Capitol Hill. They've had some very thoughtful uh, recommendations uh, that we've we've actually been able to have uh, real discussions behind closed door and uh, I think as as Leader McConnell and uh, Senator Brasso have have mentioned uh, the Senate Republicans will be returning they've been working around the clock each and every day we have a call to talk about where we can find consensus there I expect them to pass a bill uh, or at least put forth a bill in hopes of of getting to that 60 vote threshold sometime next week so we're expecting something to come out next week when the Senate returns from its work period. Do you think that that proposal that will see the light of day will approach the $500 billion skinny proposal that we've heard about? Or will it be closer to the Speaker's $2 trillion uh, benchmark for you? Well, I don't see a, a $2.2 trillion benchmark actually happening, mainly because it's not based on facts and it's not based on the reality. You know, it's real easy to put a number out there and say that this is reasonable. It's much more difficult to actually look at it and support it with actual numbers. Uh, and so that's, that's where uh, uh, the Senate proposal is looking at a more targeted uh, bill as they look at maybe a $500 billion bill. Uh, but if we can add from that and, and, and use that as a foundation or at least pass that, uh, knowing that we will largely agree on that targeted proposal coming from Senate Republicans, let's go ahead and get what we agreed to off the table, pass, signed into law, and continue to negotiate on those things that perhaps might separate the two, two parties. Hey, Mark, uh, you know, Leader McConnell's talked about uh, some of his caucus worried about the deficit, which makes sense. But Kudlow last week talked to Politico and suggested that the economy could eke it out without further aid, saying that there has to be a limit. I wonder on that latter part, on Kudlow's comment, how much of that is informing your negotiations? Well, I think the, the vast majority of our negotiations, as Secretary Mnuchin and I have uh, actually looked uh, at, at trying to address the needs, we focus real, uh, you know, real succinctly on those small businesses. What can we do to help the small businesses continue to, to operate? There's been some discussions as it, it relates to airlines and what happens there. Uh, more broadly than that, what do we need to do for enhanced unemployment? What do we need to do for K through 12 and school uh, supplements there, uh, and then those direct stimulus checks uh, that that we actually put out last time. There's a broad agreement on a, on a lot of that, and as we we look at this, the the leader McConnell started out with a one trillion dollar. Uh, uh, goal of, of putting forth this. We're actually a, uh, north of that by, by $300 billion right now, uh, but we're no, nowhere close to $2.2 trillion, and it's primarily because the numbers don't support that. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll get everybody back in town uh, and that Senate Republicans will lead the way to, to breaking this logjam.
Uh, Mr. Meadows, what do you say to those who point to the progress that was uh, made in such a rapid amount of time uh, in April, for example, late March and April when we got the first stimulus uh, bill, relief bill, and now, and say, you know what, the difference is you, the, your presence here. And I'll quote from one of your former colleagues, a Democrat, Jerry Connolly, uh, who served with you on the Oversight Committee. Closing deals is not Mark Meadows' strong suit. His whole track record is blow it up. What do you say to that? Well, Jerry and I actually have worked together on a number of things on Postal. I'm one of the few people that actually put forth a bipartisan bill. Uh, what, what they seem to forget is, is that I was actually part of the last negotiations on the CARE 3. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin and I uh, actually worked very, uh, uh, very late into the middle of the night. Uh, uh, I know my particular aspect of that negotiation was working on the testing funding and, uh, and hospital relief package. Those two things we were able to get across the finish line. Listen, any, anything we set our minds to, if we base it on facts, we can get it done. Uh, I, I can tell you that, that most of my life, uh, I only got paid if I brought two sides together. Uh, and uh, you know, when, you, when you look at it in, in that particular uh, uh, venue, it works really well. Uh, listen, there's going to be a whole lot of finger pointing right now. I'm not trying to point my finger at anybody else other than say, give me the facts, we'll get there. Secretary Mnuchin and I are willing to meet around the clock. Uh, we continue to make overtures to both Democrats and Republicans, and we'll get there in the end. Mark, you mentioned last week that the president could potentially take executive action to prevent airlines from furloughing and laying off workers. Where does that effort stand? Yeah, we're, we're looking very closely at a number of executive actions. I think I was responding to a question that uh, was specifically about uh, some of our airlines and, and whether we can actually do that to help the airlines or not uh, still remains an open question. But the president has been very clear. In fact, I met with him uh, on this very subject yesterday very late. Uh, he wants to, to do whatever he can do to get things done. Uh, he's tasked Secretary Mnuchin and I to, to get as creative as we can within the confines of the law to, to put forth uh, as much money to, to make sure that we keep this economy going. And so, uh, you know, we, we went back to the drawing board last night, again this morning, working on that. I will say that uh, when these talks broke down, there was one individual that actually worked uh, and, and got some Something done, and that's the president of the United States. And and whether it was with enhanced unemployment or any of the other uh, issues that we looked at, it was through executive orders that this president said, "When Congress is not going to act, I'm going to." That still remains on the table, and we're looking for a number of options there. Mark, I want to make sure we talk about vaccines before we let you go. I know you've been sitting in on some of the meetings uh, with Operation Warp Speed and Running Point for the White House there. There have been some talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine, the trial going on in the U.K., and now the Phase 3 trial that's underway as of last night's announcement here in the U.S. Last week on CNBC, Jared Kushner said that there would be 100 million doses of a vaccine available here in the U.S., before the end of the year. Could you elaborate on that? Is that the AstraZeneca vaccine? And, and what is the White House looking for 
to potentially fast track something? Well, it's not just that particular uh, vaccine. We're looking in and actually Operation Warp Speed is taking an unprecedented action to make sure that vaccine is delivered to hundreds of millions of people before the end of the year. And so what we're doing is actually spending money to produce vaccines, millions, uh, hundreds of millions of, of doses of vaccine uh, while they're going through the clinical trials. And so as, as we get any positive news, whether it's AstraZeneca or any of the others that are out there, you know, there's, there's uh, multiple candidates that are going through uh, phase three clinical trials right now. We're actually producing that, which means that we'll actually have millions of, hundreds of millions of vials of perhaps a vaccine that does not work, that gets shelved, but that's why we have to have this as an all hands on deck kind of approach. And the reason why Jared Kushner was so right in that uh, description is because we're doing that on multiple efforts to make sure that we're not waiting for the approval of a clinical three uh, trial to start the manufacturing. We're actually starting the manufacturing in parallel to make sure we can deliver it as quick as we can to the American people. It's unprecedented in terms of what we're seeing, uh, but these are unprecedented okay. times. To put a quick fine point on this, sure. uh, Mr. Meadows, do you expect this vaccine to come out before the election? or a decision to be made before the election? Yeah, uh, I, I can tell you that we're trying to do it. It has nothing to do with November 3rd as much as it has to do with, with September 30th, October 30th, November 30th. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that what we do is get a vaccine to the American people as quickly as possible. Uh, and whether it comes out before the election or before the end of the year, uh, it, will, it will come out in record time. And it's all about trying to help the American people as quickly as we can this president has been very clear, get a vaccine, get therapeutics, get it uh, to the American people so okay. that we can get back to normal. Well, we appreciate your time, uh, Mark, this morning. I know you're headed to Kenosha with the president momentarily. So thank you for making the time to speak with us this morning. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Likewise, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Carl. All right, Kayla, when we come back, we'll get more on uh, those vaccine candidates as we now have three that are in uh, final phase three trials. Plenty of news on the big cap techs as we see uh, Tesla, Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Zoom in the news. NASDAQ futures are higher. And then there's Walmart and their new answer to Amazon Prime when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. By now, you've seen the unveiling of uh, Walmart's answer to Amazon Prime. It's called Walmart Plus. A membership service will cost $98 a year. Only offer free shipping on orders over $35. Uh, David, uh, fuel discounts. Uh, there'll be some uh, lines in the store where you can avoid the cash lines. You can scan and go. So uh, the matchup continues to um, evolve, even as we got that news about Amazon drones yesterday. Yeah, it, listen, it's it's interesting. I think on the face of it, certainly at this point, um, perhaps a little paltry uh, in terms of what you're getting there. Uh, remember with Amazon, which as you saw is a little bit more money, you're getting 
uh, all of that content in terms of video and music, uh, which a lot of people enjoy, I think it's fair to say a great deal. Um, but it is all reflective of Walmart's continuing efforts uh, in the digital world. And we've seen it, of course, reflected in the company's numbers to some extent as well. Uh, and, you know, it, it, this partnership with Microsoft that they came out and actually confirmed, sort of just trying to, I think, lend uh, even more credence to what they're trying to do. Uh, that I was referring to, of course, for, for buying TikTok. You know, it's interesting, Carl. I, I, I don't know where it ends up for them. I know that the Walton family is still very much focused on that dividend and making sure it's paid every, uh, every quarter for them. But uh, it's certainly a changing company at this point, focused perhaps on getting its demographic uh, age down a bit as well, maybe focusing more with the TikTok thing if it were to happen on, on urban areas. Uh, so it bears watching. But this product, I don't know. You know, it's, it's free delivery, which is great, but it seems to come at a fairly substantial price at this point without a lot of additional uh, stuff. Yeah, we, we didn't get to TikTok with Meadows, Kayla, but they're certainly fertile ground there as well as we, as we look for any guidance on which direction at least the administration would prefer this thing take. Especially now that we're in the month of September, just two weeks before that September 15th deadline that the administration has set. On Walmart Plus, I think the fuel discount is particularly interesting. Yes, it's not as much of a boon for consumers now that gas prices are as low as they are. But in addition to helping Walmart compete against Amazon, it also helps them compete against companies like Costco and Sam's Club that actually sell their gas on site and are able to offer it in such an affordable way for their paying members. Um, I also think the $35 price threshold is interesting for Walmart because it helps it limit costs. You know, you're not paying for free shipping, Carl, on things like a toothbrush that's $2.99, where the cost to get that to the consumer is astronomically higher than the item that you are actually purchasing. So perhaps Walmart's figured out, you know, where the fulcrum is for where they can actually make money on a product like, like this. Yeah. You know, price discovery uh, on, on streaming, price discovery on delivery are all things that the Giants are working out. Guys, we'll take a break here. We'll get ready for the opening bell in a few moments. So don't forget, we got PMIs coming out at 9.45 Eastern in just about 20 minutes. And then at the top of the hour, it's ISM and construction spending. So a busy Tuesday in store. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. 
We continue to watch the melt-up on Tesla, which uh, despite uh, the split and despite the announcement this morning that they'll raise up to $5 billion in new common, uh, continues to go higher. As we now know, Musk is the third richest person in the world. Tesla is the best-performing stock uh, of the month of August. David, up 50% since announcing the split on August 11th. And as we search for explanations here, uh, Cashin yesterday suggested that the split itself creates complications for the shorts that make it essentially results in a squeeze, which then some others sort of, uh, I think, probably raise their eyebrows at saying, no, that doesn't really happen. But I think everybody's looking for answers as to how something, a split and new common, could result in a stock that continues to, to go higher. Yeah, well, listen, we've talked a lot about the Robinhood traders, as we call them, although many of them may be using E-Trade or Schwab and Ameritrade or whomever it might, whatever it might be. But I think that there's a there's a certain extent of that as well as we watch the opening bell uh, this morning at the real time exchange. Of course, we'll see how we end up uh, for the open here, Carl. But Tesla, it's a rare day that it goes down. And again, it is one of the largest market cap companies now in the country. What is it? I mean, it's still behind Berkshire, but it seems to be ahead of pretty much everything else after that. Yeah, I think it's it's closing in on Berkshire. And um, I was just looking at Zoom as well, guys. Uh, at 127 billion, Kayla, Zoom is now bigger than IBM. It's bigger than AMD. It's creeping up on Texan and Qualcomm. And if it were in the S&P 500, it would basically be right around the top decile in terms of market cap. Thanks to Robert Hum, one of our statisticians here. So uh, remarkable gains in market cap on some large, large names in the past few months, few weeks. And remarkable gain for the bottom line of its founder and CEO, whose wealth grew by $4 billion thanks to that stock's rise uh, in response to its earnings. The company also set to grow for the remainder of this year, raising its own forecasts for revenue by more than 30 uh, percent. It's hard to see how a lot of these stay-at-home names uh, will be able to grapple with the comps for next year, uh, which will be uh, absolutely uh, <laughs> impossible to reach if and when the world returns to normal. How in the world uh, could Zoom possibly uh, notch a year-over-year -year gain based on just the, the incredible performance of this year? But uh, that's for them to figure out and, and for us to commentate on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, as you point out, they came in with what expecting a billion in revenues. They're on track for two billion. But to our talk about uh, valuation, it is trading now at 60 times revenues. So you're buying a stock at 60 years worth of its at least expected revenues for this year. Keep that in mind. Yes, the revenues may be growing incredibly quickly. But to Kayla's point, is it really going to grow as quickly a year from now when Hopefully, we're not all zooming our way through the entire day, but we're back to actual in-person conversation. Um, Carl, I did want to come back to that list on net worth because it is just stunning and does reflect, of course, the increase in market cap and so many of these enormous uh, mega cap names. I mean, Bezos got divorced and he's still worth $202 billion. He's added $87 billion this year, as you can see, has, as has Mr. Musk off a much lower base, of course. And don't forget Mackenzie Scott, uh, Mr. Bezos' longtime uh, former, of course now, uh, uh, wife, uh, she's worth $66 billion. As you see, Bernard, Ar Bernard Arnault and uh, Larry and Sergey, of course, Warren Buffett has had the only rough go of it here, watching his net worth decline. Uh, the numbers are staggering. 
Uh, and of course, when you're talking Bomber and you're talking Gates, you're talking Microsoft. When you're talking Zuckerberg, you're talking Facebook. Bezos is Amazon. We can go on and on. Larry and Sergey are, are Alphabet, all of which, although not as much for Alphabet, have added enormous amounts of market cap over a very short amount of time. Uh, and, and again, these numbers, I don't know how it figures, Kayla, into the into the uh, discussion around wealth in this country and the election, but they're staggering. Uh, these are all founders, pretty much across the board, people who created their companies, but the numbers are just, I mean, we've never seen anything like them. No, and Mackenzie Scott has now become the third richest woman in the world with that 25% share of her ex-husband's wealth. Worth noting, she has given away uh, more than a billion dollars of it, even uh, just in the last uh, couple of years. So she is uh, devoting uh, that net worth to philanthropy. She has already given away uh, quite a bit of money. And in, in some statistics that I saw, more than Bezos has. Um, so she is trying to, to do what she can with that money. But it is worth noting, uh, as we look at the open and look at some of these trades, you know, as we talk about these tech companies like Tesla that continue to soar, you do have a lot of these legacy old line companies that continue to struggle in this economy. Earlier this week, you had Coke announce uh, layoffs to optimize its company for the future. And then there's a report that Ford, uh, the automaker, is planning to cut a thousand salaried jobs in North America. Uh, and that announcement, according to a Bloomberg report, could come as soon as this week. And that stock is down about one percent after the open. So you are seeing a lot of these uh, big, cumbersome manufacturing and old line companies who are trying to figure out how to right size for what the world looks like for the future even as these asset light companies are able to really optimize their products uh, for the economy that we are in right now. And uh, it's a struggle for a lot of those companies. And you're seeing Ford stock react to that news this morning. Yeah, that's a great point, Kayla. Yeah. Uh, as um, software is not just eating the world, but uh, eating the industrial economy uh, in terms of uh, shareholder preference as well. David, I'm curious to know what you think about some of the sell side uh, throwing in various towels. We mentioned Goldman removing their sell on Zoom this morning, but also today Wells uh, removes their underweight on Qualcomm. They go from 90 up to 120 uh, based on higher peer valuation metrics. Uh, he had a different, slightly different story with GE and Steve Tusa removing his price target yesterday, but uh, analysts increasingly seem to be arguing, look, either we are not going to try to chase the market or we're having to get religion on things that we maybe were too pessimistic on. You know, it's a difficult position to be in when you're an analyst. And, you know, you don't typically hear me uh, uh, feeling badly for them, but you're trying <laughs> to stick to your valuation metrics. You're trying to at least sort of stay in some semblance of what makes sense. Uh, and yet the stocks are running beyond you. You're forced perhaps to think about things in a different way. You don't want to look particularly stupid. Uh, which is not that easy, you know, not that hard to do when you see moves like this. Uh, and so I think it becomes difficult. You know, I, I really don't pay that much attention, frankly, to the ratings oftentimes or the ups and the downs or the price targets as they do for some of these analysts in terms of what they actually are saying and what their views are, the fundamentals or what perhaps in some of their work they're uncovering. And so I think it's worth reminding people that that's what's important. Uh, and we'll see what kind of commentary comes out of, for example, the Zoom call, uh, the Zoom call, the Zoom. Well, they did have a conference call as well, but the Zoom quarter uh, and, and how it's viewed. You know, again, are you really going to want to continue to pay 60 years worth of revenues for a company that is growing at 100 percent a year, 
But is it going to be a year from now, uh, particularly given how unique this period may be for it? Speaking of unique periods, uh, guys, I did want to hit shares of Kodak, a name that I was following quite closely, as you both know, uh, a few weeks back, of course, when the company stock soared. It seemed to have secured a $765 million loan from the U.S. government to help the, uh, with the uh, creation of uh, supply chains for uh, the ingredients for drugs. Uh, and that loan very much in question. Why is the stock moving like this? Well, there was a 13G filed by the large New York-based hedge fund, D.E. Shaw, um, that seems to have gotten people's attention. Uh, I can't tell you with certainty uh, as to why D.E. Shaw is in this name. What I can tell you is the following. Don't forget, D.E. Shaw, largely a quantitatively driven fund. Now, they do have other aspects. People may know them from my reporting when they've been active in a particular stock. Uh, but... Uh, a lot of their strategy is based on algorithms, on quanti quantitatively driven. And so sometimes names just end up being in the portfolio because they hit a certain parameter and they buy a lot of it, particularly when it's a small cap company. And so they file G's sometimes. It's a passive stake. It's not an active stake. And it's just not clear to me that that much should be read into it. But that seems to be the only reason that stock is up 40 percent. Um, yeah, I, I can't tell you much more than that. But keep that in mind. Uh, always important, Kayla, as uh, we continue to watch the uh, Kodak story unfold. Yeah, with many twists and turns, David, any view on how long the horizon that D.E. Shaw is looking at for that investment could be. I know that it, it basically just hit a bunch of quantitative parameters, but uh, now that it has and now that it is in the portfolio, do you know, is it something that they'll, they'll flip, something that they'll hold for a year plus? What do you think? Uh, probably not. I mean, these things tend to move fairly quickly. I don't know what, if, if in fact it is part of an algorithm, rhythmically, uh, uh, driven strategy there. Uh, it, it could be a matter of moments that they actually own it, or it could be for some period of time, depending on what it's hedged against or what it's in, in some way uh, in sync with. So I don't know. Um, I don't know why it showed up there, but it is a G. It's not a D. Uh, and so we'll have to wait and see if I could keep rhyming. Um, Guys, I also wanted to hit Tiffany real quickly, or of course for a very different reason, something that I've been following closely, which is namely the uh, continued concern about what Bernard Arnault, who showed up on our earlier list of the richest people in the world, of course, may or may not try to do in terms of getting a price cut there. I've been reporting a lot on this. Yesterday, a service, a, um, uh, a pay service uh, that follows things on the antitrust front and others had indicated that there was a potential delay in their filing uh, for formal approval from the EU on an antitrust basis. And I can confirm that, in fact, uh, I think it was late last week, um, they were uh, in receipt of from the EU what I'm told by people familiar with the situation were um, requests for information that was really just about catching up on certain items we're sort of cleaning things up, not thought to take particularly long to fulfill this request. And I'm told, again, that, that uh, while it might have the effect of delaying a filing, formal filing, by a bit, it shouldn't hold it up too much. But, of course, it does play into the fears, continued fears of, of investors, which is why the stock is trading 12 bucks below the 135 price, uh, that it is going to be yet another uh, reflection of Bernard Arnault's reluctance to try to follow through with the deal. Remember, it's November 24th now. 
that is the final drop dead deal. They did extend it a date for closing. Uh, they won't get that far if, if, in fact, somehow they don't get EU or they delay things. Tiffany's going to sue them, it would seem, based on everything I hear. So we're still watching this closely, seeing if a fight actually comes. But all indications are that they will file for EU in the near future, though, as I had reported last week, it might be as soon as this week, most likely not. Carl, back over to you. All right, uh, David, thanks for that. So we got all-time highs on the NASDAQ, uh, all-time high on Apple, all-time high on Peloton. Let's get to our Bob Pisani this morning. Hey, Bob. Hello, Carl, and happy Tuesday, everybody. Kind of a flat open, although two to one declining to advancing stocks with the S&P, uh, and that shows you the power of technology stocks. So if you look again today, tech's moving, but that's because you got Apple and Amazon on the upside. Uh, that helps. Uh, but look at the cyclicals, industrials, banks, energy to the downside here. Uh, where are the new highs? We're at historic highs intraday yesterday. I, I see six new highs on the S&P today. And that's, there's Apple, there's Amazon, there's Walmart, there's Qualcomm. Every single day, these four or five stocks are on there. And where's the rest of them? Uh, we need a more new highs here to confirm uh, the great movement and the, the overall uh, uptrend in the market. Not getting that. As for Zoom video, you struggle to find the superlatives. Here's just a few facts uh, I put together here. Uh, the IPO price that was in April 2019 was 36. It's $450 right now. Uh, the market cap when it went public was $10 billion. It's now $130 billion. The revenues when it went public was $430 million. That was the quarter before it went public in April 2019. It's now they're talking about $2.4 billion. So you struggle with superlatives to try to figure it out. This is a simple way to understand what they're doing right now. And there's Zoom today. That's not a typo. You're talking up, uh, what, 30%? And it was, what, $65 when it started uh, in 2020. You see what it is uh, right now. How about the market? How do you describe five straight up months? People are kind of at a loss for words because everyone's now trying to figure out what would break the market momentum. And a lot of professional traders really are at a loss for words. I spent a half an hour with Tony Dwyer yesterday, an old friend of mine for 20 years. Uh, he's withdrawing his S&P 500 target. He tells me there is no precedent to how high the valuations can go with low rates and unlimited QE. No precedent? I mean, these are veteran market analysts, kind of like at a loss for words here. Uh, Brian Belsky, another old friend for, for decades here, reinstated. He, he had withdrawn his 2020 target. He's reinstated it. He says the market's epic rally is challenging traditional forecast models that are based on earnings and interest rates. Uh, we, John Stoltz at Oppenheimer withdrew his price target recently. These are veteran market analysts who know their stuff that are sort of at a loss for words on how to describe what exactly is going on. So th th this is the issue. What multiple do you put on unlimited Fed support? How do you describe it? That's what they're having trouble doing. You remember in the past, recessions were caused when the Fed essentially withdrew accommodation. What do you have now when the Fed has essentially said we are not withdrawing accommodation anytime in the distant future? What is the multiple? How do you assign it? You're not in any historical pattern or precedent. And that's essentially what these analysts are saying. We're in uncharted territory right now. And in the absence of that, you focus on the drivers. The drivers are unlimited, almost unlimited Fed liquidity and the fact that the global economy slowly, very slowly, does appear to be improving. Those seem to be the two things that everyone uh, is focusing on. Want a little bit more on that bull bear debate? TraderTalk.CNBC.com has a whole discussion about that. Very, very interesting times to be in if you're a stock market analyst. Guys, back to you. <laughs> That's for sure, Bob. Thanks. We're going to get PMI in a few moments. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick.
Hi, Carl. Listen, we'll go through some of the charts, and then when the news hits, we'll break right into it. Look at a three-day of tens. You know, since last week, we completely see we continually give up ground. Whenever rates seem to firm up, they just don't seem to get any legs. And if you look at a month-to-day chart, wow, you know, we went from basically 50 to 70 basis points. Not bad. Breaking news. Our August final read on market PMI, expecting a number around 53 and a half, a little bit light, 53.1. 53.1. Now, this replaces 53.6, which was the early read, and 53.1 is the best number going back to ciphering, ciphering, to January of 2019, so the beginning of last year. And later on today, a very short while, now we're going to get the ISM August read, which is also going to most likely be a barn burner other ISMs around the globe have been. Back to the charts, the month-to-day chart, we've gone from 50 to 70 base points on 10s. Dollar index and the euro currency, we know that the euro makes up a significant portion of the dollar index. Look at a month-to-day to the dollar. Not a great month, but when you hook in a two-month-to-date and hook in July, you can really see that's where the deterioration started in earnest. We're now under 92 in the dollar, basically 28-month lows where it's going to close today. And finally, let's look at an April of 2018 of the mirror image, the euro versus the dollar, it crossed 120 for the first time in 27 and a half plus months. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, we'll see you in a few moments uh, for ISM and construction spending. That's our Rick Santelli. Uh, watch chips today. AMD, Broadcom, NVIDIA, Qualcomm are all coming off their all-time highs. We're going to break down some of those names with Bernstein, Stacy Rascon uh, after the break. Stay with us. Chip names such as AMD and NVIDIA leading the charge for stocks as they close out August or closed out August with more all-time highs. Bernstein's Stacy Razgan is joining us now, and he's got uh, names he likes to continue at least that run for a while. Stacy, I mean, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Broadcom, AMD, I think all of them hitting all-time highs yesterday. Probably, yeah. What's an analyst to do? Do the fundamentals support all of that? Do you have to just kind of go bend yourself into a pretzel to sort of justify some of your price targets? Well, not exactly. So let, let's talk about where the sectors kind of come year to date. Um, obviously, you know, nobody had a global pandemic on their scorecard when things started out. Um, and when everything hit, I mean, people were sort of applying the, the global financial crisis as the, the, the most likely filter to look at the current crisis through. And that's kind of what happened in March, like everything collapsed. We've seen something interesting as this has gone along is that semis, by and large, have proven quite resilient in, in the wake of the, the, the global situation. We've got um, changes in consumer behavior, work from home that's actually been driving and supporting demand far above, I think, what anybody had hoped for. Um, and so now if we're kind of looking forward, we've, we've got a few things. Demand has held up much better than people thought. We've actually got a growth story for a number of these names, particularly ones that are benefiting from some of these trends. And if you're sort of looking at the current situation, I think it's just validating how important technology and I think by proxy semiconductors are. I mean, I couldn't even imagine doing something like this, say, if this had happened 20 years ago. And so it's giving investors a little more confidence maybe to look through what's going on right now, especially when they're seeking um, uh, structural or secular stories that you'd want to own for the long term. And a lot of the names that you just mentioned, I think, fit into that category and in this environment where investors are certainly paying up for for growth and those kind of opportunities on um, these stocks are working right okay so do you then have you actually increased your estimates of long-term growth rates for some of these names and therefore are willing to accept a far higher multiple as well 
I mean, some of them, yeah. So, uh, for example, like in our coverage, we've got, you know, we've got a number of outperforms. Two of them I would classify as sort of secular, and those are NXP and, and I'm sorry, not actually, NVIDIA and, and Qualcomm. And certainly, I mean, NVIDIA numbers are, are, have just been going up by leaps and bounds. Data centers on a tear. Um, it's holding in very well. Even as we're going into a potential digestion phase within data center broadly, NVIDIA is holding up super strongly because we have a product cycle that's playing out as well as secular trends. And the gaming cycle that they're about to kick off looks to be a monster, and so numbers are going up a ton. And with Qualcomm, I mean, look, Qualcomm has been deaf to own for half a decade, but mostly because of regulatory and customer disputes that have been sitting on the trend. Those are now com mostly clear now that they settled the Huawei issues, and we're now things are clean to, to, to look forward to the 5G cycle which and, and, and the Apple cycle, which are just starting to come up. And, and so, again, the same thing. Those kind of growth rates, those those sort of estimate expectations have been going up leaps and bounds, and the stocks have been working on that. Stacey, got to leave it short today, uh, but uh, always appreciate, even when you're uh, you're tight on time, or we are, uh, you sharing some insights with you, with us. I, I we will see you, you soon. Stacey, thank you. Sure right. thing. All right, when we come back, uh, keep an eye on some of these large names. Walmart is leading the S&P at the moment with a nice three and a third percent gain. Zoom leading the NDX up 36 percent. The Dow's up four. There was a time not too long ago where an Amazon target of 3,500, let's say, uh, got laughed at, but we actually got there this morning. Uh, stock settling back just a touch from an early all-time high above 3,500, currently 3,488. Let's go walk on the streets back in a moment. Don't go away. Bond investors not exactly optimistic about the comeback of New York City post-COVID. Robert Frank explains. Robert. Good morning, David. Well, the risks of investing in New York City debt have more than doubled during the pandemic. That's the message anyway from the muni bond market. Now, last week, New York City sold over a billion dollars in long-term bonds, and the rate was 1.45%. That's low, but the number that's important in the muni bond market is the so-called spread. That is the difference between the yield and the rate for AAA bonds or the benchmark. Now, before COVID, New York City spread was 20 to 30 basis points, but the spread on last week's offering was 72 basis points, so more than doubled. In the muni bond world, that is a large and very sudden move. Howard Cure of Evercore Wealth Management saying the wealth reflects concerns over New York City's credit rating and potential problems. Now, the Fed is helping to keep these rates low for now, but New York City has $38 billion in outstanding debt obligations, and it is now seeking approval from the state for $5 billion more to avoid layoffs of over 20,000 workers. Analysts say the city has to pay even more for those bonds or could to attract buyers, which, of course, could raise its borrowing costs, forcing it to cut capital spending and services even more, which could reduce the tax pace and add to that potential downward spiral. Now, New York's bonds are now trading to levels similar to Philadelphia, though not as bad as Chicago. So at least we've got that going for us. Guys, back to you. All right, Robert, yeah, the story we got to watch closely. Robert Frank talking about uh, the spread in New York City muni bonds. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.